Hello everyone, welcome back to the People's Assembly Against Austerity podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Rain, and in this week's episode we are talking about Osborne's budget, an exercise in secrecy and unsound statistics. Second off, we're talking about what is austerity. We talked to Matt Wilgris of the North London People's Assembly about what austerity means and what it means to you. Third on our list is upcoming actions, the part where you get to take part. And last but not least, new music from Honeyfeet. You saw them at the Manchester Rally with Billy Bragg and you loved them. They loved you too. So they're giving you a song if you've signed up to support us via Patreon. Osborne's budget, an exercise in secrecy and unsound statistics. When Osborne released the budget two weeks ago, he led with his top five attempts to pacify the British public. Let them drink beer, he said, more cheaply. Let them off paying tax a second time on savings below a certain level. Help those who cannot actually afford a home to go into debt for a mortgage they probably cannot sustain. Perhaps the only point that was not so transparently unhelpful was raising the level of non-taxed personal allowance income. But in an economy where the massive rise in self-employed whose income is below the poverty line anyway, this is still small solace. On issues like the NHS and welfare cuts, crucial at a time when we are to place our faith in one political party or another based on their policies, there was resounding silence. Besides not offering any indication that they will stray from the current programme of austerity cuts and privatisation, the mix of silence and rhetoric surrounding the Tory budget announcement raised two huge red flags. The first, openly misleading information about the Tory impact on economic recovery. The second, a complete refusal to be honest with the public about their intentions. First up, the openly misleading information. Now we all know that politicians prefer rhetoric to facts and Osborne's assertion that Britain was again riding high was accompanied only by minimal and out of context figures to suggest that their austerity programme had stimulated growth in the UK economy and halved the deficit. Both claims that opposition leader Ed Miliband quite rightly calls the biggest sleight of hand of all. Mr Osborne was, as Miliband also suggested, doing a bit of rewriting of history. Data published by the Daily Telegraph last week show that GDP under the Tory government has fluctuated constantly between just above a negative 0.5% and just under 1% since they came into power, a pattern of peaks and troughs that shows only the most tenuous upward trend. As to the national debt, claims that it has been halved are a complete red herring in the face of figures on public debt. Figures available on Wikipedia and published in the Telegraph show public debt has in fact increased both steadily and significantly from the time the Tories came into power, starting at just over 60% of GDP and rising to its current level of around 80%. The 2015 budget deficit is expected to be higher than any other EU country barring Croatia according to Investec. Let's not forget that the Maastricht criteria for entry into the EU requires a public debt of 60% at a maximum because anything over that is not considered to be a state of financial stability or responsibility. Essentially, a country with a public debt of over 60% of annual GDP is considered to be locked into a state of perpetual debt servicing that makes self-sufficiency and recovery unlikely. The stats not only give clear indications that the Tory system of cuts and privatisation has been far from effectual in resuscitating the UK economy, in fact has damaged it further, they also reveal that Tory MPs are willing to use completely fictitious grounds to push their failing austerity plan forward. 
The final big election time claim by Tories is, of course, that unemployment has fallen. But those statistics fail to explain crucial factors in that drop. For example, zero-hour contracts and the huge rise in self-employment at levels below the poverty line. Their proposed forced youth labour programme will doubtless also contribute to the misleading statistics that they will use in future to big up the achievements they have not actually made. Youths in forced labour are not technically unemployed either, just trapped in unpaid work. To the second red flag, secrecy and a refusal to engage with the public they serve. When the budget was announced, Tories led with what they considered their best foot. The second never came. There is over $12 billion to be saved from further cuts by Tory officials, who simply refuse to tell us how this will be done. With only six weeks until election time, they've said nothing on the subjects of the NHS and welfare cuts, two critical themes in the eyes of voters and the people the government are meant to represent. The silence actually gives us some useful information. It reveals the level of contempt for the people that vote for them and for the people they govern. When pushed to answer questions on leaked documents showing Tory plans to cut carers' allowance and increase taxes on the disability allowance, Duncan Smith of the Department of Work and Pensions sidestepped the issue completely, saying to the BBC, When we are right and we are ready, we will talk about what we plan to do. Voters know for certain that we are going to save that $12 billion. We may, we may not, decide that it's relevant to put something out there about those changes. Not only was this a clear sidestep from issues of content to issues of ability, it was also a total refusal to engage with the public on their intended actions. Quite rightly, this has caused uproar. Shadow Work and Pensions Secretary Rachel Reeves said, The public have a right to know who will be hit by the Tories' plan, and they must now come clean on their 12 billion cuts. Ian Duncan-Smith's refusal to admit how children, disabled people, carers and working families will be hit by the Tory plan six weeks before the election is completely unacceptable, she said. What seems obvious is that the Tories are not announcing their plans because they are plans no one will like. It seriously does boil down to a political party that says, I'm not telling you what our policies are because if I do you won't vote for me. A key part of the voting process is, of course, looking into the policies that affect us and that are important to us and placing our support accordingly. Any government knows this, and it's an essential part of the fair and just functioning of the electoral process. The sheer act of refusal to let its voters be informed is a warning bell that rings at deafening levels. When a political party refuses to let its people know what its intentions are and yet still expects their support, it's an issue of trust and transparency. In the end, regardless of what the exact content of the Tory budget secrets are, the fact that they are secrets at all should give us the information we need. It is only fair to caution any voter against placing their faith in a party who does not respect them enough to be honest about its plans. Topic 2 of this fortnight's podcast, we are talking about austerity, what it means and what it means to you. Here in the studio we have Matt Wilgris, who is the organiser of the recent open letter supporting the Stand Up to Racism demonstration that was published in the Camden New Journal and the Islington Tribune. He works for the North London People's Assembly Against Austerity, the organisation behind this podcast, and involved in a fight against a broad range of issues relating to austerity. So question one is about austerity itself. I wanted to start with a bit of a definition. The word austerity is of course one of those cleverly chosen words that government often use to put positive connotations on a bad situation, or really to gloss over things entirely by making meanings difficult to understand. Matt, can you tell us about austerity and what it means for everyday citizens? I think that's a good point, because um, when you're out leafleting or something, if you have a leaflet that says 
stop the cuts to the health service or stop the cuts to youth clubs or something like that. Mm-hmm. People are very sympathetic. Um, but if you have a leaflet that says something about austerity, a lot of people don't know what austerity is. Mm-hmm. So the first thing you've got to do is to actually explain that the cuts that we're seeing, the massive cuts to health, the crisis in housing, the bedroom tax and so on, are all part of the politics and policies of austerity. And the politics of austerity is presented by those who support it as um, balancing the books. Like if I was in, had some debts to a credit card company or something like that, and I had to pay them off. But in fact, it's an ideological assault that goes beyond some cutting spending. It's an ideological assault that's going to the root of the idea of public service or a welfare state at all. Mm-hmm. Yep. I have a quote here from Professor Joseph Stiglitz, Nobel Laureate in Economics and former Chief Economist at the World Bank. It's from an Oxfam report. And he says that the wave of economic austerity that has swept Europe is at risk of doing serious and permanent damage to the continent's long-cherished social model. As economists, including myself, that's him talking as Professor Stiglitz, we have long predicted austerity has only crippled Europe's growth, with improvements in fiscal positions that are always disappointing. Worse, it is contributing to inequality that will make economic weakness longer-lived and needlessly contribute to the suffering of the jobless and the poor for many years. Now, you're working with the North London People's Assembly Against Austerity. On a grassroots level, what are the impacts you have seen in your area since austerity measures began? Obviously, North London is quite a broad area to cover, but the effects have been many in in many different areas. So um, in certain areas, such as Barnet, where the uh, council is very sort of ideologically tied to austerity in particular, so many public services and local services have been cut. Basically, all the libraries were shut, although some are now run on a volunteer basis. Close to home where I live in Haringey, we've seen youth clubs shut, community centres shut services social services under consistent attack and um it's only going to get worse if the governments continue to commit to this austerity agenda because they keep cutting the funding to the council and most of the councils then seem to put those cuts on to the people who live in their areas so it's already a very broad on a local level but then you also see the local effects of national issues such as um problems in the nhs the housing crisis with um, none of the local authorities really building many council houses in North London with the partial exception of Islington. So people get hit at a double whammy because they get hit on things that a local authority is supposed to provide or could provide and on things that the national budget is cutting. Um, also, of course, benefits. The bedroom tax has affected a lot of people in some of the states around here in Harringay, where I live. And also caps on welfare benefits and stuff all fill it, feed into a culture that says that there's something wrong with having a welfare state mm-hmm. and also that there's something wrong with public services. You raise an interesting point there with the idea that there is something wrong with the welfare state. We notice this with the rhetoric surrounding Greece as well. Some of the sentences repeated consistently by the German finance minister about the Greek debt, things like Greece has been living beyond its means for too long, suggesting that people there have been living up in some kind of irresponsible luxury rather than acknowledging the actual real hardship inherent in the situation. And with comments like that, deliberately avoiding discussion on the root cause of the situation by implying it was the Greek people that led to the debt in the first place. And England certainly seems to have had this attitude towards the welfare state for quite some time. I think the implication in Greece um, 
which obviously the whole dialogue that came out of Germany and elsewhere and a lot of the media was very ideologically driven to justify the sort of forcing on Greece of policies that aren't popular with its population. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a lot of it was based on myths in the first place because a lot of people in Greece had some of the worst working conditions in Europe, had some great poverty levels in Greece and so on. So the idea that everyone was sort of wandering around in Greece on these um, cushy contracts on loads of money was, was a myth in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously since the austerity programmes, various austerity programmes were implemented in Greece, you've seen a complete human catastrophe, which if it wasn't actually for sort of networks of people stepping in and doing things like healthcare and providing food and so on, would be even worse. Like the government of Greece, the Syriza government, calls it a humanitarian crisis in Greece, and I don't think that's too strong a word to use. Yes, yeah, it seems like just another example of this process of demonising people who are already disadvantaged, who are already on the back foot. In the name of recovering debt, that seems to be a, a key element in the propaganda that we use to reinforce the idea that we should be cutting housing, we should be cutting health. And I think the de- demonisation is a good word because you see it in lots of different ways. Like Greece has in some bits of the media almost been demonised as a country, kind of like stereotypes of lazy people or mm-hmm. the, what you said, people spending beyond their means and so on. Like are not just Greek governments condemned, but like almost the ordinary Greek person condemned as well. And I think in Britain you've seen demonisation of different communities and different sectors of society during the to justify austerity. In particular, I think there's a real demonisation of anyone who claims benefits because the welfare state is much more than benefits. Mm-hmm. There's been a real demonisation. But I think that's also ideologically been going on in this country for a long time. Like the first campaign I was involved in politically was against um the Labour government that Tony Blair led, cutting single parent benefit. There was a big moral undertone to that campaign in the press and so on that demonised single mothers and single parents. And I think what you've seen now is you sort of see that writ large and a lot of it actually based on myth rather than facts because a lot of people obviously are on the welfare state for whatever reason, but a lot of those people would want a job. But equally, I think it's quite worrying ideologically, the idea that society or the state should never give people anything back, I think is quite worrying. And you do wonder where that could end up. Like, could that end up with no state pension at all, rather than just a very low state pension, Um, for example? Because why should I be paying for Joe Bloggs down the road's pension kind of mentality? On the subject of of cuts to, to welfare, to pensions, the budget was announced two weeks ago. Do you think that it does anything to mitigate the problems that are being faced by everyday people in your area? Does it offer anything new or is it just a continuation of the same sets of cuts, privatisation and dismantling of the public sector? Obviously the first thing to say about the budgets is that the Conservatives are deeply ideologically wedded to the idea of um, austerity and neoliberalism. It it's never has been just about balance of it. There was um, a quite horrible moment, I remember, when they, they did an emergency budget when they first went in, um, or as they said, an emergency budget. And a lot of the MPs were sort of cheering loudly as these massive cuts in a whole range of areas were announced. There wasn't like a sort of, oh, we have to do this, but we don't want to about it. It was very ideological. And I think all the budgets have been like that since. What concerned me was to read a few economic analysis that said, actually, whilst this implemented yet more heavy cuts, still most of the cuts would are to come after the election and that they may have um, held a few cuts back and given a few sweetness because they were going into an election. I'm not an economist, but if you think about the social impact of the cuts and austerity so far, we're saying we've got years and years more of that, but with more on a higher scale, I think the sort of human consequences of that are quite serious because a lot of councils, for example, have been cutting in certain areas 
and choosing not to cut in others. Well, presumably, if this carries on for another five years, they'll just be cutting anything if the whole framework of politics and discussion about spending in this country doesn't change. And to just elaborate on the budget theme a bit more, Professor Stiglitz's comments send a pretty clear message that austerity measures like cuts and privatisation don't actually work. So why then, in your opinion, do the government persist with austerity measures? I think it's back to what we are just talking about. I think there is an ideological basis. And I think when there was the financial crisis and the economy entered recession, there was a debate and a choice to be made about who should pay for that crisis, whether it should be the people who caused it in the financial sector and so on, or whether it should be people as a whole in society. And the ideological choice of the government here, but in lots of other countries as well, was to try and make the population pay for the crisis that the population didn't create. And I think you see some quite horrible things of that, like, for example, the scapegoating of immigrants, which in this election campaign, there's a daily news story on the radio blaming immigrants for something like yesterday, apparently the reason children don't play football outside in the street in the park anymore. It's because then parents don't feel safe because of the number of immigrants a UKIP leading candidate said. So I think this demonisation gets quite nasty, but it is all about trying to make people blame different sections of society and other people rather than those at the top who caused the crisis in the first place and probably are now benefiting the most from the process that's underway in the economy at the moment. It's, it's interesting that you mention that because we talked in the last podcast leading up to the anti-racism demonstration about the utility of racism, the idea that it's a very nasty age-old trick used by governments to deflect blame from themselves and onto communities instead. So instead of attacking government policy, we end up attacking each other. Basically, it's just a very toxic, old-fashioned divide-and-conquer method that's led to some of the worst atrocities that we've seen in history. And yet political parties here in the UK don't seem to think twice about using it. I think that's exactly right. And um, I think there's been a deliberate stoking up of racism and scapegoating of different sections of society. I think huge parts of the media in particular have to take blame for that because some of the stuff on the front pages of the Daily Mail and other similar papers to that is so factually untrue. But I think what's also disappointing is that the leaders of the major national political parties, with the exception of the Green Party and probably the SNP in Scotland and Plaid and Wales, but the three sort of historical main parties in Britain haven't really stood up to this racism of, that UKIP and other people have been fueling. They seem to have sort of entered the game of divide and rule themselves as well. Yep, yep, you're right. It's it's particularly disappointing from parties like, like Labour who are basically doing nothing to counter the idea of racist scapegoating. Now, to move on to, to what can we do about these things? Now, it's quite understandable that a lot of people find it really daunting with the, the number of demons that we're having to fight in the age of austerity. Can you give us some advice on what people can do to assist in the fight against cuts, against privatisation and against the dismantling of the public sector? I think... In the People's Assembly is quite a unique body in that it basically organises across the whole of England and Scotland, which other previous sort of attempts to set up an anti-cuts campaign haven't been able to do. So if you look on the People's Assembly website, there should be a local group near you or in your area. If not, you should. Um, so there will definitely be supporters and people who are interested in setting one up. Um, and also, in addition, of course, there's in a whole range of areas, there's a whole range of community and other campaigns against specific cuts that people can get involved in as well. 
another of the worrying things that is actually a psychological side effect of being constantly under financial pressure, being time poor, being financially poor, and facing these demons that are a lot bigger than anyone can fight alone. Um, is that we feel very robbed of the ability to, you know, be agents of change, to have an actual effect on our lives. Now, we both work together with the People's Assembly Against Austerity, so we know the positive side of feeling like you can change your situation and make a difference. Can you tell us more about why it's important on both a personal and a wider level to get involved? I think that's a great point because obviously old-fashioned sort of political sayings like unity is strength that a lot of trade unions say can sound a bit cliched but there's a key element of truth in that comment which is if you're part of a movement you feel very different to just having your own views and um something that i found in various things we've been doing in north london the people's assembly primary above them but other things like the anti-racist campaigning you mentioned is that even just on a personal level it feels like you can make more of an impact just working in a small group rather than on your own and i think the good thing about the people's assembly is that people can be involved in so many different levels and it organizes on so many different levels right through from local protests on very specific local issues through to lobbying the mps and campaigning against the budget and so on and everything in between Mm -hmm. and i think to feel like you're part of a movement that is making the case on a national level but also that you can have an impact on the debate on a local level with it is obviously politically what needs to be done but I think it's also better for people than feeling like there's nothing they can do about it or just trying to do things on your own through like um clicktivism as people call it Mm. where people sort of do stuff on social media but don't engage in any other stuff I think if you organize collectively including in using social media you can have a much bigger impact and I think obviously Greece that you mentioned near the start of this interview if it hadn't been for the massive movements against austerity these strikes that a lot of people have heard to but also the community campaigns the um inspiring sort of support networks that sprung up the campaigns on a whole range of issues such as health and so on then you wouldn't have got to the stage where there was a possibility of austerity and the cuts being reversed and i think that's what the lesson we can take on the issues for example where ed Miliband has made a stronger stance the living wage which i think he announced something on yesterday repealing the bedroom tax and so on mm. all of those issues had really prominent national and local campaigns mm-hmm. um, where people got together and said we're not taking this anymore and fought back against it one can't say for sure but it seems to me that it's on issues where there's been big campaigns and housing seems to be becoming that now health is another obvious one mm-hmm. that the, there is movement in the situation mm-hmm. and what we need to do is use that movement to crack open the whole debate and start talking about those ideas joseph stiglitz was talking about in the quote you read thank you so much for your time matt we really appreciate it and to preempt myself a bit here, um, as follow-up to what Matt was saying about joining the People's Assembly Against Austerity, on Saturday the 20th of June 2015, we will be organising a major national demonstration to tell the new government to end austerity now. It is one of the big rallies that's coming up, so do make a note of it. Head to the peoplesassembly.org.uk for more details. Of course, there are other really important rallies coming up. So this is part three, Upcoming Actions, the part where you get to take part. On Saturday, April the 11th at 10am, we have the People's Convention for the NHS, a national conference where we invite you and your organisation to support and participate in the People's Convention for the NHS. Now that is at the Emmanuel Centre, Marsham Street in London. On Monday, April the 13th, 2015, at 6pm, we have the CND's Vote Out Trident Party in protest. 
The general election in May will decide which MPs vote on the $100 billion replacement of the UK's Trident nuclear weapon system. So headlong on Monday the 13th for the action on that. On April the 18th, there is a global day of action against TTIP, TTIP, which if it goes through, will make an escape from austerity impossible. So it is very important to attend that one. April the 18th, it's a Saturday now, no matter where you are in the UK or the world actually, you'll find a local protest going on. Head to the War on Want website for details on that one. The People's Assembly Against Austerity will also be present of course. We also have the People's Question Times with the next one Thursday, April the 9th in Norwich. That is at Epic Studios at 6.30pm. Now the wonderful song that you are hearing on in the background is by Honeyfeet. It is called Another Song. Now they are an ethiotrad folk hop band from Manchester. You can find more information about them at honeyfeet.org or honeyfeet.bandcamp.com. Bandcamp, of course, are one of the good guys. When you purchase stuff from Bandcamp, it actually goes to the artists. Imagine that. So head along there and support the band. I think it's a fantastic song. If you are supporting the People's Assembly podcast via Patreon, you get a copy of this track for free. If you're not yet, head to patreon.com slash P-A-A-A and you'll find us. For those of you that do support us, your financial assistance goes straight back into the fight against austerity, privatisation and cuts. Thank you for listening and we look forward to seeing you again in a week's time. Bye. Oh